0: The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterward, a slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Robin Shulman, whose book Eat the City, a tale of the fishers, foragers, butchers, farmers, poultry Minders, sugar refiners, cane cutters, beekeepers, Winekeepers, and brewers who built New York has just been published by Crown. Robin, thanks so much for coming into the Slate office today after reading your amazing book. I feel like we really should be outgrowing something or making something rather than sitting in an office, but I'm glad we get to talk. Yeah, really glad to be here, June. So you tell the story of New York, its geography, history, waves of immigration, about pollution and nourishment by writing about its food. Did you always know that all those things were so intimately connected? I did not.
1: (laughs) I started out interested in the way that cities work. I also had some personal experiences that made me interested in food. And I realized as I was thinking about the place that I had lived when I first came to the city, it was a block on 4th Street between Avenue C and D that was at the time pretty desolate and drugs were kind of dominating the neighborhood, and there were many buildings that had burnt down and left vacant lots. As I lived there, people planted a garden and began to keep roosters, (laughs) uh, which I later realized they were keeping because they wanted to eat the roosters and uh, produce eggs for food. I was amazed at the way that food production had turned a very desolate place into something productive and generative. Much later, I at left town. I worked in the Middle East and I came back to New York. And at that time, the city had completely changed. And that very same block, some of the gardens had been built into tall buildings mm-hmm. and the neighborhood had really gentrified. New people had come in and didn't want to live next door to a crowing rooster. <laughs> at the same time, other places in the city people were beginning to keep chickens as backyard pets. And so I kind of wondered what was going on here. It seemed almost like you could create a chicken theory of gentrification, (laughs) where in poor neighborhoods, chickens were no longer part of the landscape and these urban gardens were no longer part of the landscape. And in other neighborhoods, they were coming into vogue. So I,
0: I began to wonder what was being lost and what was being created. Yeah, well, there's this fantastic historical aspect of the book, I was shocked to learn this amazing food history of New York and and all of the amazing production that used to come out of the city and is starting to come back to the city. But your first section about beekeeping contains a mystery, or a couple actually. One is why city bees have flourished when many are suffering elsewhere. As you say. beekeeping became legal in New York City, just as rural areas were reporting this thing called colony collapse disorder. But first of all, why had New York City outlawed beekeeping in the first place?
1: It's not entirely clear. It happened in 1999 under the mayoralty of Rudy Giuliani. And he was coming down hard on all kinds of irregularities in city life. His administration chose to outlaw beekeeping and put bees on a list of dangerous animals that are not appropriate to keep, including dingoes. So after that, beekeepers continued to keep bees, um, but they had to do so clandestinely. And so there were hives that were kept on rooftops that were camouflaged to look like chimneys painted red, uh, and hives kept in gardens that were painted green to blend in with the bush. People continue to keep bees, but it was illegal until the Department of Health reversed the ban in 2010.
0: Amazing. So why did urban bees seem to be immune to colony collapse disorder, which has been reported all over the world?
1: It's not clear that they're immune, but there certainly have been fewer cases reported. Uh, I don't know of any cases reported, but it's not clear exactly what colony collapse disorder is. But increasingly, studies are pointing towards systemic pesticides, which are used in large fields in rural areas, when commercial beekeepers transport their bees from field to field, they're exposing them to the pesticides used on commercial crops. And in urban areas, there isn't that kind of agriculture. And so the bees are are foraging from street trees and from botanical gardens and are less exposed to that kind of pesticide.
0: And it seems they also just have more variety, as you say, you know, whereas commercial bees and commercial farming they plant one thing and then they move to another field where there's one thing whereas city bees just have a more of a smoogish bird
1: it's true, and the diversity of the diet can be helpful because bees need to collect nectar all summer long, right. and in a rural area where they're only f- gathering from a specific crop that comes into bloom all at the same time, other parts of the season they can starve, and oh. commercial beekeepers have to supplement their diet with sometimes high fructose corn syrup or, or something else so that they can survive through the season in the city, there are plants coming in and out of flower throughout the season. So unexpectedly, city bees might be
0: better positioned to survive. And another mystery that you report on, this beekeeper David Selig, he noticed that his bees suddenly started to look red and also to produce bright red honey. What was that about?
1: You know, David Selig likes to talk a lot about the fact that When you taste honey, you can actually taste the landscape that the bees have foraged from. So he would travel and he would go to places like Syria and Turkey and he would taste the honey in order to taste the environment around him. And in the city of New York, neighborhood by neighborhood, the honey will actually taste different because the bees are collecting nectar from different kinds of flowers. Unfortunately for David Selig, his bees began to collect something that he was not entirely certain was nectar. They came back and he could see in their bellies that uh, the bees themselves were glowing bright red and they were creating honey in the hive that was this bright scarlet color that didn't look at anything like something from the natural world. So he was concerned that maybe his bees were gathering ethylene glycol from the nearby bus yard. He was looking up beekeepers' manuals from the 1800s to try and determine if there was some rare kind of tree that they might be foraging from. But it turned out there was a maraschino cherry factory around the corner from his house and the bees were gathering high fructose corn syrup dyed with red dye number 40 and bringing it back and depositing it in the hive.
0: Bees are very aware of their environment. They knew about the maraschino cherry factory, but even though he'd lived there for a while, he actually didn't know it was there.
1: There were a lot of beekeepers in Red Hook that year because it was the year that beekeeping was legalized and A handful of people were trying it out. Many of them didn't even know the Maraschino Cherry Factory was a few blocks away from them. But the bees told them the story.
0: The bees knew. The bees knew. I love that the section on vegetables begins with you telling us that Willie Morgan, who's been growing in New York City for decades, started to do it as a front and also kind of as a marketing for his numbers operation.
1: Yeah, he had an illegal numbers joint in Harlem in 1969. And various of the other numbers runners were trying to interest their customers by giving them chicken for the weekend or, or some eggs. And Willie thought... I can give my customers vegetables. At the same time, I can operate my store like a greengrocer, and the cops will never know what's really going on here. But the problem with his plan was that he didn't have any vegetables. <laughs> So he decided to grow them. (laughs) So that's how he began growing vegetables in the city. He was originally from Georgia, and he came to New York as a child, as part of a generation of African Americans coming up from the South. His uh, grandparents raised him until he was nine years old, when his parents came to the city for work, and his grandparents were sharecroppers. So uh, Willie grew
0: up with a farming background. You say that as late as 1880, Brooklyn and Queens were the two biggest vegetable-producing counties in the entire country, which is... Amazing at this point, just because of the way that land is used right now, apart from anything else. I mean, where were
1: those farms? They were all over those two boroughs. Um, Essentially, they were intensively planted to feed the Manhattan market. That was the way that cities were structured. They would have kind of concentric rings around them towards the center, there would be more perishable fruits and vegetables produced and more fragile ones and more expensive ones. And then as you get further out, you would have longer lasting fruits and vegetables and and then further out things like wheat, so that everything would be kind of centered around producing for the
0: city. So this was before the age of of easy transportation? and It was before the age of refrigeration. Right. You know, in this era of eating out of food trucks, you made me aware of another kind of food truck. Uh, So as you mentioned, uh, people like Willie, who moved to the city in the great African-American migration, still had tastes that had developed when they were young. And so these food trucks would come up from the south. Full of food that Southern blacks and and Southerners generally craved in in huge quantities.
1: Yeah, it still happens today. Actually, even now in Harlem and in Bed Stuy, there are trucks that come up from Georgia and South Carolina. The people in the neighborhood know to expect them on a certain day, and they have a specific corner that they'll park on and open up the back of the truck, and it'll be full of watermelons or collard
0: greens and people will be able to get food that they know came fresh from a farm. So your section on meat made me realize something that cropped up in a couple of places. People come to New York to become sculptors or writers or great artists and some of the time they instead find themselves being butchers or brewers or other food producers, food and drink producers, because in part that's something that people really want and enjoy and will pay for.
1: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. A lot of people who are trying to make it as artists of one sort or another are working food jobs in their spare time to make money. Sometimes those food jobs become something that overtakes their art. You know, when they're not able to sell their art or they're not able to sell their music and they're able to work with really creative people and create something interesting that has an immediate impact on people that people can immediately taste and enjoy and that is a low cost that regular people and their friends can share with them it it sometimes is more compelling than than the
0: art that they thought they wanted to do you talked about tom myland who's a butcher and entrepreneur and it was funny because he spends 70 hours a week on his work he's absolutely committed to you know researching and and trying to come up with new ways of doing business. You know, I almost felt a bit bad. There he is in a butcher shop for 70 hours a week, whereas some of these other people who were, you know, would get lost in their planting or fishing, you know, like, oh, that's just a fun hobby. That's, a, that's an odd sort of reaction that I had. But some of these people, I mean, they just become obsessed with, for example, butchery.
1: I mean, I think that some people really enjoy the physicality of the work yeah. in butchery. And there's something that's very, uh, it's an art. You know, Tom will say that it takes maybe a year to learn how to cut up an animal, but it takes much longer than that to figure out how to use all the parts of the animal and how to make the proper cuts and and what to do with those cuts. For him, it's something that he's, still perfecting over time and he still is learning about. For him, he started out as a sculptor. In essence, it's similar to sculptor sitting there and and carving through the animal and taking out the various parts. When you watch him at work, you can really imagine him sitting there with a piece of
0: plaster. Again, maybe just my response, but I sometimes think of this sort of gourmet culture is being very elite and expensive. But so many of the things are actually people are getting food almost for free. You know, there's much cheaper and fresher and all of that. And one of the in this meat section is striking that one of the halal butchers that you profiled, you know, it was in a poor remote immigrant neighborhood, but it was some of the freshest meat that was available in the city.
1: Yeah, it's kind of amazing. He serves a Pakistani community, where there are also a lot of other immigrant groups. And People demand the quality of meat that they're used to in Pakistan, where they're from. So they want specific heritage breeds. They want the animals to look a specific color. They want to know that they came from a nearby farm. And they want to see them alive and, and know what they look like while they were living, to, yeah. to trust that the meat is fresh and to trust that it's high quality. It's really ironic that in wealthy sections of the city, people try to get that kind of meat and can't get it. Mm-hmm.
0: Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, the Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any US listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Eat the City isn't available on Audible yet, but folks interested in New York may well enjoy Robert Caro's The Power Broker Robert Moses and the Fall of New York, about the shaping of the modern city. The audio version runs for 66 hours and 11 minutes, so you can take it with you as you travel the length and breadth of the five boroughs. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download one of the 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Crown has very kindly given us four copies of Eat the City to give away to listeners, and Robin has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words City Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterword at gmail.com by 11.59 Eastern Time on Friday, July 27th, 2012 and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address and if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterword at gmail.com. I'm talking to Robin Schulman, author of the new book, Eat the City. Robin, you call New York a sugar city in the way perhaps that Detroit was a car city and Pittsburgh a steel city. That kind of surprised me. I didn't know anything about the history
1: of sugar when I began this research, and it surprised me too. But New York essentially grew into a world-class city at a time when sugar was the main industry in town. So sugar was one of the Propellers of the city's growth. And it was at a time when the sugar was coming from the Caribbean, where plantations were being worked by slaves, and it was brought to New York for refining. There was a time when Brooklyn produced
0: most of the sugar refined in the country. And you also point out that the sugar trade also brought many Puerto Ricans to New York. By 1960, they were 8% of New York City residents. And in a sort of slightly strange way, it was sugar that brought them here. In Puerto Rico, sugar was the main economy and much of the investment
1: in the island of Puerto Rico and the sugar economy came from New York investors. So as the sugar trade waned, people came naturally to New York, the same route that the sugar itself traveled and that the financing traveled and
0: ended up in New York City. Now, there's been a bit of a brewing renaissance in New York of late. As you say, it's a product that sells in any economy. When times are good, people drink to celebrate. And when they're bad, it's consolation. And again, I was surprised to learn that New York was the brewing capital of America until Prohibition. Again, it's a story
1: of immigration. The German immigration to New York was enormous, and the Germans, when they came in the 1840s, brought with them lager beer. They set up lager breweries in the Bronx, in Manhattan, in Brooklyn. There was a section of Williamsburg and Bushwick in Brooklyn that was known as Brewer's Row because there were so many breweries there. There were more than 100 breweries in the city. They were kind of these magnificent buildings that were the neighborhood pillars of industry. They had large grounds where people would have beer gardens. Yeah. And that was the focal point for community life. People would go there in the summers and spend the day with their families sitting in the beer garden or go to the beer halls on the Sunday night. So what happened during Prohibition? I mean, that it seemed that the Midwest took over? Just before Prohibition was World War One, And there was a lot of anti-German sentiment the two coincided, the sentiment against Germans and the rising sentiment against alcohol consumption. And it really crushed the, the breweries. Many of them closed down during Prohibition and never reopened.
0: And then after Prohibition, the brewers that did survive and that did thrive were from... It's
1: really interesting because the Midwestern brewers had created systems for national national trade. They had set up networks and set up railway deliveries. Ah. And so they were well positioned to continue to do so after Prohibition, where in New York City, the brewers had such a ready market because the city had such a large population of people who wanted their beer yeah. that they never really felt the need to expand. So when the industry changed and many of the small breweries went out of business during Prohibition and it seemed that there was room for a few large ones to take over, those were the ones from the Midwest that already
0: had their markets. Now, even in this time when brewing is coming back, it's still extremely difficult in New York just because well, the price of land, the cost of wages. It's just so tough to, to be a commercial brewery here, right? Brewing
1: has always been about real estate in New York City, huh. um, then and now. And the real estate is so expensive. It is very hard to open a brewery and the machinery is so expensive At you know, 150 years ago, it was easier to set up a brewery when that meant a couple of guys standing around a pot heating beer. Everything is harder in the city. Yeah. Parking, bridge tolls, everything is more difficult. So it's not that breweries aren't, opening up. It's just that there are much smaller numbers
0: of craft brewers
1: here than in other
0: cities. You have a great chapter about the amount of fishing in and around the city. We are surrounded by water. And as one person says, fish is the only thing in the city you can eat for free. It's
1: certainly the most substantial thing in the city you can actually eat for free. And (laughs) what's troubling is that many people who can't afford much are essentially living off the land in this way. They're living off the water. There are a lot of poor people who fish to subsist. Some studies have found that people who fish for subsistence feed their families an average of 9.5 fish a week. Wow! So they're eating a lot of fish from polluted water. There was a time when... There was so much oil spilled in the water that it was almost routine for the water itself to catch fire. Mm. And there are these descriptions in the early 1900s of rolling waves of flame coming up off Staten Island. And there was also a time around that period when the waters were so polluted with sewage that people would get typhoid, which is a disease contracted from sewage, just by handling oysters produced in the water so Uh, it has improved since then but we did a number on it and so it really isn't safe to eat the fish it's not advisable women and children essentially should not eat any fish from most of the city's waters there are complicated regulations for how many fish other groups of people should Mm -hmm. eat of which kinds of fish when but essentially you can't eat as many fish as many people are consuming.
0: And, and many of the people that you spoke to were not willing to change their habits or couldn't afford to change their habits. There's a, a problem when the message isn't getting through to them. They don't understand
1: the regulations either because they can't speak English mm. or because they just assume that it's another government imposition that has no real worth. But yeah. they're, they're not aware of the
0: harm it could be doing to them. The final chapter is about wine. Again, to display my ignorance, I was unaware of New York's history of winemaking. But here, it's not so much about fine wine. It's about family and immigrant traditions. So the two groups, or the communities that were most associated with winemaking were kosher Jewish families and Italian immigrants. So kosher winemakers were exempt from prohibition. And why were they making so much wine? Wineries proliferated in in the Lower East
1: Side where there were many Jews and the kosher wineries had an exemption, so they were able to produce wine where no one else could. So there was a situation where people would post up a rabbi's uh, letter of permission, a certification on the wall and make it seem as though they were operating a kosher winery when, in fact, they were selling to speakeasies. (laughs) And the rabbis would be paid off to use their name for this certification.
0: And kosher winemaking was so popular because wine has to be drunk on the Sabbath. The Jewish religion has many rituals that involve wine. And then Italians, it was just a tradition that they would drink wine with their meals and that they would make that wine. I mean, again, I was surprised that it was so common.
1: Yeah, many Italians came from Italy with a winemaking tradition that they didn't want to give up when they when they arrived in New York where just the climate and mm. possibilities for growing grapes were very different. They continued to produce wine and they would buy the grape from California. Every fall, quantities of grapes would come in and Italians would make the wine in their basements. Landlords would give Italian families uh, a lot of space in the cellar for barrels of wine so mm. in every Italian neighborhood it was the expectation that a landlord would provide space in the in the cellar for winemaking
0: incredible the uh, terminal were the grapes would arrive. It's still functioning. It's, I mean, it's white grapes still come for people. There to are get wine. still wine grapes coming into the
1: city every fall. There's a Brooklyn Terminal Market. There are other places in the city where people can go and get wine grapes. And it's no longer just Italians. It's yeah. Albanians. It's uh, Orthodox Jews still making wine. So yeah. it still follows that seasonal rhythm. The market is is full of nothing but grapes, and people pull up and load up their SUVs.
0: Having done this research and after spending time with all these amazing people, have your own habits or experience of New York city changed? I definitely think my experience of the city has dramatically changed. I see food everywhere. (laughs) You know,
1: I I kind of walk through neighborhoods and see the history in the buildings that are still there and and know a little bit more about what took place in these places, which is so incongruent with the way that the city works now. It's kind of this amazing lens through which to view the city. So much food production used to take place on the neighborhood level, Mm. and so many people were involved in it. And it used to be kind of at the center of neighborhood life and much less of that is happening now in certain ways but in other ways it's really resurgent and in many parts of Brooklyn there are is this new food movement yeah. and uh, people are looking for that kind of neighbourhood life centred around
0: food again. Once again, thanks for coming in and talking with me today. That was Robin Schulman, whose new book Eat the City, a tale of the fishes, foragers, butchers, farmers, poultry Minders, sugar refiners, cane cutters, beekeepers, winemakers and brewers who built New York is available in bookstores now. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Ben Johnson, the executive producer 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 of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to the afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas.